Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, he and I are recording this week's show on Friday, February 23rd, 2024, and Drew You've been up since the butt crack of dawn. I have been. And that was because the Warner Brothers Discovery fourth quarter earnings call that 8 8 a.m. East Coast time? 8 a.m. East Coast. I don't know why they did it so early, but yes, I was up at five (sighs) o'clock. It was was tough. It was tough. But we'll we'll talk about that soon. Well, uh, we we, we will. We will. No, in fact, we're going to talk about it now. Okay. Uh, You know, because that's the thing. There's this wonderful article over at The Wrap written by Drew Taylor, which talks about Warner Brothers Discovery's attack plan for 2024. Mr. Zaslav, the CEO and president over there, spoke of this attack plan as one of the reasons that we're getting some of the very best people coming on board with us over there. And some of those very best people are actually your good, close, personal friend, Mr. Cruz. Is that yes, correct? yes. Did they he... they formally yeah. announced uh, a new project with him and Alejandro Inaritu, who won the Oscar for The Revenant. And uh, I think he won for Birdman, too, actually. So, um, but yeah, they don't know what that project is, but it is it is happening, apparently. No mention of what we wished someone had brought up. And I I wanted to ask about that because again, they acknowledged, uh, you know, that, that uh, 2023 between the flash Aquaman and the lost kingdom and the color purple didn't deliver the way they wanted. And even with a big hit like Barbie, which heavily favored headed into award season here. And, and also Wonka, which is, I, I was surprised to see, that really has legs. What is it, 10 weeks now that it's been in the top five? If you look at the wrap this week, Jim, you'll see an interview I did with Paul King, who directed Wonka, and he he actually talked to me about his version of Disney's Pinocchio that he spent years on. By the way, the, the, the last five minutes of Paul King's Wonka have literally become my security blanket. I No, seriously. You know, that, that just, if I'm having a bad day... You know, and I just, I need, you know, something peaceful. The last five minutes of that thing where you, he becomes Willy Wonka, you know, you literally see the, you know, him bring the, uh, use his imagination to bring the chocolate factory that we know from the 71 film to life. I cannot tell you how many times I've watched that. So, uh, all right, definitely going to read that. But now to circle back to the thing we were just talking about, the no coyote and, and nothing. There was no mention at all during the earnings call of this. No, there was any acknowledgement. No, there was no, and nobody brought it up. He didn't acknowledge it. I think the only Coyote versus Acme type thing that happened was after the call. It was almost like Zaslav ran off a cliff because the stock price dropped thirteen percent. The it, it's the first streaming service to make money, and it still dropped thirteen percent. By the way, it's worth noting here that. This was not the only studio in town that had a bad day. I mean, uh, Paramount Global, uh, what, their credit rating actually got downgraded to negative by SB Global. So um, this is an interesting time, particularly given all of this talk of, you know, companies that may be merging or, or looking to position themselves to, you know, look good and get sold. But also worth noting about Coyote versus Acme. This past weekend, the Annies were held at Royce Hall, 
UCLA. And at one point in the proceeding, Eric Braza, you know, who is the voice of these days, a number of Looney Tune characters, Bugs Bunny, Marvin Martian, Daffy Duck, as he was at the podium at the Annie's, actually shouted out, release Coyote versus Acme. And have you heard any news on that? There's been nothing. Uh, it's not looking good. Here. It's not looking good. I I, th- I was hoping that someone would bring it up to him just so that he would have to say, yes, it's gone or no, we sold it or something. I just don't get this. Especially when you have a streaming service that made money that, you know, people would pay attention for two hours to your streaming service if, if this were running. All right. Anyway, we were just talking about the Annie's. We'll have more about the Annie's in a moment. But first, uh, news on fine tuning is brought to you by Touring Plans. If you're headed down to Orlando anytime soon to visit some of the theme parks you'll find there, Touring Plans can help you save time. More importantly, can help you save money. So before you book that flight to Central Florida, go check out touringplans.com and you can thank us later. All right, 51st Annie's, again, as we mentioned, held at Royce Hall this past weekend. And the big winner was uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Took home seven awards, best feature, best effects, best character design, best production design, best direction of a feature, best music in an animated feature, and then best editorial. And were you surprised by that, Drew? Because, you know, I mean, up until this point, it just seemed like the boy and the heron, the, the Hayao Miyazaki, uh, had been kind of sweeping all of the other award ceremonies. Yeah, it, it surprised me a little bit. I just thought that this race was a little bit more wide open. And I'm hoping that the Oscar race still is. They actually just started voting yesterday. And every every branch can vote for the animated feature award. So it's going to be interesting because there's a lot of heat around Nimona, you know, We'll talk about Robot Dreams in a minute. And Elemental is still, I think, a, has a good shot. So, yeah, it's it's interesting that, that Spider-Verse swept it. But it's also an amazing movie, and I totally understand it as well. So, yeah. No, 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 no. I, I, I get it. Now, and you mentioned Nimona. That did get a little love. Um, it, and now, mind you, it went into the Annie's with nine nominations. It was the most of any animated feature this year. It only took home two. Uh one for Chloe Grace Moritz, uh, voice acting as the film's title character, and then one for the screenplay. And also worth noting that Boy, I, I, the Boy in the Heron didn't go home empty-handed either. Took home the entity for character animation, and also one for storyboarding. And, and Disney, well, you know, I mean, it did get one for Marvel, uh, the character animation in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, uh, that's Rocket and his animal pals. Also want to point out on a, a previous edition of um, the uh, fine-tuning, Drew talked up the War is Over uh, animated short, uh, the, the one that's inspired by the music of John and uh, Yoko. Uh, that took home the best animated short, excuse me, Annie, and uh, that bodes well for the Oscars. But you, you got the opportunity the day after the Annie's to uh, to chat with the folks behind Robot Dreams, right? Yes. Yes, I did. I talked to, to Pablo Berger. It was a honestly sold-out show at the Arrow in Santa Monica on Sunday morning. And yeah, so we had a really great conversation. The movie is amazing. He is so sweet and lovely. And um, yeah, I just love that movie so much. So... I know it doesn't come out until May for most people, but just remember it. All right, moving on to other news now. 
And this one hurts. Uh, we lost Ken Melton earlier this week. Uh, in fact, Thursday, uh, February 22nd. And I don't know how many people outside of the industry know Ken, but trust me, you've seen his work or you've seen stuff that was influenced by his work. He was the guy who did the maquette. In fact, I, I can remember the first time I saw one of his maquettes, I was visiting a friend at the Magic of Disney Animation at MGM Studios, and they had just gotten the box of the maquettes for uh, for Aladdin. And, you know, and it was just, what was so cool was to watch animators who, I mean, these are guys are sitting there who have the model sheets on their desk or working on things, and they were you know, they were marveling at how well these things. No, I mean, I, I've, I remember those maquettes, you know, like the, the back of my, I mean, they were so well posed. There was so much character that came through the maquettes. Jim is alluding to his time with Disney animation in the nineties, but he did, he touched so many animation studios and then to have him. He did. Yeah. yeah please. Mm -hmm. He was at, yeah. I think he was at DreamWorks. He was at Pixar and he, was doing real maquette, you know, like show used maquettes for Leica uh, later in his career. And, you know, those are just so beautiful. I think Shannon Tindall, who's a friend of mine, put up a great photo of the big skeleton guy from Kubo and the Two Springs. Oh, yeah. And it is just absolutely yeah. stunning, you know, for him to go from those maquettes to things that were in the movies. Yeah, he's a, a genius. And, and what's so fascinating about his story is that, I mean, this is a literally a kid who grew up in rural Missouri, okay? And, he, you know, he, he would finish his farm chores and then go into his bedroom and pull out a, you know, a, a, a sketch pad. He taught himself to draw. And, um, I, but he eventually moved from drawing to sculpting. And he did a, a sculpt of the Beatles which he then took to a music festival in Chicago. And what was interesting is, you know, again, didn't know what would happen, but just wanted to bring them to the music festival and see what the reaction was. There was a guy from Hanna-Barbera at the music festival who saw these Beatles sculpts and said, oh, you got to come work for us. And so he gets hired by Hanna-Barbera and, you know, and he ends up doing uh, maquettes of, you know, classic, Hanna-Barbera characters like the Flintstones and the Jetsons. And, and then as they start to do new stuff, and this is, I got to find these. He, he evidently did a set of sculpts for the, do you remember they did that Ed Grimley? Yeah, absolutely. Series? Okay. You know, just, <laughs> it was on for like five minutes. And, but again, I was a fan of, of Martin Short's character from, uh, you know, SCTV. So this, this was something I went on or I want to watch, but, but anyway, he's working at Hanna-Barbera. And one day at his house, they're having his son's fourth birthday. And and you you know how it is. You know, when, you know, when you, you get a kid has a birthday and the other parents come and bring their children and, and drop them off. And, you know, when do I have to come back and collect them and that sort of thing. And it turns out that one of the parents that's coming to his son's fourth birthday works at Disney. He's an art director. And, you know, and so... The, the very next Monday, he goes into work, and here's John Musker and Ron Clements, and they're they're about to begin working on Aladdin, and they're like, well, you know, we should really get some maquettes going for this, and but who can sculpt these things? And 
the art director's like, you know, I was at a, a kid's birthday party this weekend. I was walking through the house. There were there were these maquettes and this this guy who's doing stuff for Hanna Barbera, and we should definitely we should bring him in. And that's how he got the gig. And and from there, it's it's Aladdin, it's Lion King, it's Pocahontas, it's Hunchback. I, you know, all the way up to uh, what is it? Atlantis, the Lost Empire. And then, as you mentioned, in between there, he sort of decamps to uh, DreamWorks and does Prince of Egypt and Road del Dorado and uh, Spirits, you know, and also Thumbelina, which I found kind of interesting. I guess that for Don Bluth, and, and as you mentioned, he did he did do some stuff for Pixar. In fact, it was amazing. If you've ever seen the Edna mode that he did for The Incredibles, I mean, that pose was all the way through the film. But yeah, like you said, he, he was up at Leica doing actual, you know, production maquettes for them all the way through to, I guess, box trolls. But then sadly, uh, you know, you know, he got felled by a Louis body dementia and uh, we lost him at 68. In fact, he returned to Missouri. Like, he died in his home in, in Stone County. So this is a huge loss. And I, I, I have to tell you personally, I have been trying 30 plus years to get my hand on one of his genie maquettes they are so beautifully sculpted in such strong poses and i'll get it someday but all right and and speaking of magical creatures however just today we learned that a new iteration of the fairly odd parents has been ordered the series by nickelodeon and uh, again drew obviously you saw the original uh you know uh, created by butch hartman debuted on nickelodeon back in 1998 uh, must have seen one of the 10 seasons that, that was out there. It was during that period in my life, Jim, when I was too cool to be watching cartoons. But <laughs> clearly the, the pendulum has swung in the other direction uh, all these years later. Cosmo and Wanda, you know, were, were such lovely characters. And and, and again, the interaction with, with Timmy Turner, uh, you know, uh, with those two. And, and what's What's great about this new show, Fairly Odd Parents, A New Wish, is they are bringing back uh, Susan Blakesley and Darren Harris to to voice Wanda and Cosmo, respectively. Um, now, mind you, it's, you know, it's the, the Drew Taylor business model, the, the one that, that, you know, Drew regularly calls out. Nickelodeon has ordered 20 episodes of this series, which will debut on the cable channel this spring. Uh, and then it'll show up on Netflix internationally later next year. But what's the smart money here, Drew? So twenty episodes, means two seasons. Two seasons yeah, 10, yeah. Right? You saw the clone that uh, Clone High is back for season two. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the the same thing. And what's also nice about this because the remember that the when for example Animaniacs came back, but and came back with the original voice cast, but did not come back. They didn't bring back the original writers, the directors, people like uh, Peter Hastings. This time around, uh, the series uh, will be co-executive produced by Butch Hartman, the creator of the original. And uh, Fred Siebert, uh, who executive produced the original series, will be back. Um, have to wonder if uh, Vicky or Crocker, uh, the, the, the teacher who determined to prove that fairies are real, I wonder if those characters will return. Anyway, I, again, that show debuted in in the late 90s and a, a film that debuted in that same window of time fantasia 2000 uh when we get back from this break drew and i are going to talk about uh one particular segment 
from that film and, and why, you know, we're celebrating that uh, this year. But first, this. And we're back. Um, oh, uh, before we get started here, Drew, you uh, had some news about Owashu, the uh, the animated series. Yeah, so that that's premiering, I believe, this week. So I just wanted to let everybody know how great the show is. It's it's really strong animation and a really engrossing story, and it is this wonderful, you know, combination of a of a small animation studio out of britain that's that's kind of african based and also walt disney animation studios um you know you'll see a lot of familiar names in the credits uh natalie norgett who who jim and i have have followed for years she's the head of story and um, marlin who has done so many amazing uh water effects and things from moana and everything he's director of visual effects so a lot of people you know, and then a lot of people you don't know, and and you know it's a really, it's a wonderful story, and I just want to tell everybody that they should watch when it's on because it's really great. At the very least, go seek out the trailer, which is a pretty spectacular. I mean, it just I mean you know it sort of establishes the world, establishes the character style. It looks like kind of a wild story, actually. You know, can't wait for the, what is it they used to have in He-Man, the, the battle cat, the, the, when the tiger transformed. I, I want, you know, I want to see the, the lizard. What is it? The, the chameleon or whatever it is. I, I want to see the battle version of the, you know, the, the toy they make of that. Cause that, that looked pretty wild in the trailer. Yeah, the the little lizard is really f- a fun character, and it's not like Baymax and Hero, where they're like, and you know, they're they're bonded initially. She's sort of she's skeptical of yeah. this lizard, you know. No, yeah. I I I actually love that moment in the trailer where your Dad presents his like, yeah. Eh. So so anyway, check it out. Great, great stuff. Now on to Fantasia 2000, which again would was uh, released to theaters in December of '99. In fact, I don't want to brag here, but um, Nancy and I, along with our friends uh, Jeff Lang and his, his bride Flo, we we sprang for the tickets to see it uh, when it was presented at, at Carnegie Hall. And how do you get to Carnegie Hall, Jim? <laughs> Well, in this case, you drive several oh, okay. hours down from New Hampshire. I, I thought it, well, I thought it was nothing practice, to do practice, with practice, practice, but yeah. No, 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 no. We're not. I'm not going for those old jokes. Uh, but uh, we were up in the nosebleed seats, and, and I, I'm trying to remember. Nancy, did was there a live orchestra for Fantasia 2000? There was. We saw it with a live orchestra. Go figure. But when I was living in Florida, I mentioned at the top of the show, we had friends who, who worked at Feature Animation Florida. So... Those guys very, very early on were looped into the, the fact that, you know, Dizzy was going to be making another Fantasia. In fact, they, they would have the gong shows where people would take pieces of classical music and pitch their ideas for, you know, what could be done with, with this stuff. But again, I'm old. I, I remember when Disney in the 80s was looking to do a, a Fantasia follow-up, and this was was Musicana. Yeah. All right, so you know about that one. Yeah, wasn't the idea, I mean, Walt's idea, right, was that 
it would sort of be a living thing that every few years there would be segments that would swap in and out. And Musicana was uh, an actual attempt at a complete follow-up to it, right? It was. It was. In fact, uh, what's kind of interesting is I don't remember the piece of music that it was supposed to be built around, but there's that whole The Emperor's Nightingale. Yep. Uh, there's a storybook out there that, uh, in fact, what's interesting is all the 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 drawings in it are done by John Lasseter, and it's of Mickey uh, as the Emperor's yep. attendant, and you know the 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 songbird that he has. But but anyway, uh, what was also interesting about Musicana was it was going to be, you know, face it, uh, Fantasia is a you know a lovely film, but all of the music for it, classic music, uh, classical music, was done by European composers, and the notion was okay. For this next film, we want to do uh, some American music. In fact, I, I, I'm sure, Drew, you've seen some of the drawings that were done for, I want to say there was one sequence in this that was going to be Fats Wall done to the music of Fats Waller and it was all uh, frogs and bowler hats and, yep. you, know, uh, you know, playing in a jazz band, that sort of thing. And um, Just I, think, I, Jim, I there could be a frog in a bowler hat in a stairwell today. Just like, <laughs> just like J- poor Joe Gardner oh, no. sitting in the stairwell at a dumpy hotel in Anaheim. Uh, have you made that? Uh, uh, sorry, Drew is of course referring to the Pixar Place Hotel. Have, have you and Katie made it down there yet? No, or? no, uh, we haven't. I mean, I've heard it's still kind of a, kind of a dump in terms of the. <laughs> The the level of sound from room to room. Also, Jim, you could not, if Jim was actually paying me a living wage, I would not even go because there were, there are like, okay. the rooms are like $400 a night. It's like insane. We were just talking with friends about traveling down to Orlando sometime this spring. And literally the, the notion is, and let's not go to Disney. Let's not go to Universal. We were, uh, you know, in fact, talking about doing a day at say discovery cove Mm -hmm. and then uh actually and there's this very amazing place just on the other side of tampa where it's an elephant reserve or preserve oh wow it's all of these and so the thing is you, you you pay for the privilege to go for the day to feed and wash and tend the elephants uh that sounds much better to me than waiting two hours for 60 seconds on Tron light cycle run, you know, and lining Bob Iger's pockets. You know, I I think that Uh, tending to animals sounds much better to me. I will say this though. The one thing I do want to do at some point at the Pixar place hotel is go see Bing Bong. You know, the fact, I mean, it kind of, I'm not thrilled about the idea that the only place on the planet you can go to see Bing Bong again is this four or $500 a night hotel. Yeah. And that is an exclusive to people who are staying there. But, you know, I'm happy to finally see that character, you know, out and about, so to speak. You're right. It's it's just too, it's it's not fun to go to the parks anymore. It's such a hassle. <sighs> Tell me, show me the lie, Jim. And this is why Disney fans listen yeah, to the yeah. show. There we go. Okay. Anyway, um, we were talking about American music and I do, you know, I, I Again, and we bring that up for this show in particular because this month is the 100th anniversary of the very first performance of Rhapsody in Blue, written, of course, by 
George Gershwin. But what's fascinating is it was band director Paul Whiteman who commissioned it. And it was a piano solo backed by a jazz band. And, and what's interesting is the version we know today, the full symphonic version, that didn't come about till, till 1942. But beautiful piece of music, very evocative, you know, animator Eric Goldberg, and we'll get to that in a moment. So anyway, back to uh, what, it, again, initially was called Fantasia Continued. In fact, as the story goes, it was at the very first meeting with Roy E. Disney and Michael Eisner sat down after uh, Eisner had officially become the Disney CEO. And, you know, his reward to Roy for backing his bid to become Disney's new CEO. And Michael said, well, what do you want? And Roy said two things. It's like, I want to be in charge of feature animation, and I want to talk with you about circling back on the idea of doing more segments for Fantasia, because that's something Walt wanted to do, and I feel like that's something, you know, uh, we should do. And so again, they start talking in 84, but they don't get serious about it till you know, they, they get the first couple of successes under their belt. And once Mermaid really connected, it's like, okay, let's, let's look at that. But here's the thing I find fascinating especially with, you know, Maestro up for so many awards this year, the very first person that Eisner goes to when he's looking for somebody to, you know, I mean, face it, you know, the, Leopold Stokowski was the, the, the conductor that was associated with the original Fantasia. We need somebody with equal heft in the modern music sphere, you know, to, to be, you know, our, our front man for Fantasia uh, continued. So, Eisner sits down with Leonard Bernstein. The maestro himself? The maestro himself. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so, and, and it's just, and evidently Bernstein is genuinely intrigued. And they start to talk, they start to talk money, they start to talk contracts, but then sadly, we lose Bernstein in October of 1990. And eventually that's how we get James Levine. He signs on to do the project this December of 91. And then, you know, it's just sort of like, you know, it, as Drew mentioned, it was, you know, the whole gimmick of Fantasia was going to be that you swapped segments in and out, that it would be, there'd be this mix of the familiar and the new. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, they look at the original Fantasia and decide, okay, so whatever we do here, you know, and, and at this point, the movie is supposed to come out in 1997, said, whatever we do here. We're going to hang on to The Sorcerer's Apprentice, The Nutcracker Suite, and Dance of the Hour. And then it's, you know, this whole notion of, all right, let's, you know, we can do some new stuff. And so, you know, they be, they look at things like The Firebird Suite and Carnival of the Animals. In fact, what's kind of interesting is Carnival of the Animals is Eric Goldberg. And, and in fact, he, you know, drives the bus for the animation on the thing, but his wife, Susan, art directs it. and uh, And it's also this sort of, uh, you know, murderer's row kind of a project because it's it's Joe Grant who comes up with the idea for this thing, which actually keys off of <laughs> evidently uh, Mike Gabriel, uh, Eric's co-director on Pocahontas. You know, when they th were working on the film and having problems, Michael to, uh, to relieve tension would play with a yo-yo. And, and, and Joe was the one who noticed it. And evidently at one point, 
drew uh, an image of an ostrich with a yo-yo. And so the, 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 you know, and everyone thought, oh, that's a funny idea. Maybe let's take the music from Carnival to Animals and do that. But it, I guess it was Susan, again, the art director, who was like, no, 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 this needs color. Uh, ostriches are black, you know, and more to the point, you know, you're doing Dance of the Hours. You know, the ostrich, we've already got ostriches in this movie. Uh, why don't we go with instead flamingos? Because, you know, think about it, pink flamingos, you know, a splash of color, and that's what they went with. And so that was supposed to be Eric's only contribution to the original Fantasia Continued. Well, the other thing you have to say, though, too, Jim, is that you're saying that he drew that during Pocahontas. Whenever anybody was off of a movie or in between a movie, they would shuttle them into what they called special projects, which was like the dumping ground. But. At the same time, this is where things like Runaway Brain came from. This is where the uh, Nazi propaganda sequence for Rocketeer came from. And one of the things that they always said when they sat somebody down in this blank room was, well, why don't you think about something for Fantasia? And so that's where a lot of these things came from, right? As just these people who were in between projects. Yeah. Now, speaking of which, though, and in fact, this is what's a fascinating part of of eric goldberg's career because uh again remember he doesn't come to work to, to for disney till you know uh, late 80s early 90s and and again they, they bring him in deliberately to do the genie and aladdin and remember the genie was largely inspired by the wonderful drawings that al hirschfeld used to do for the the, the new york times so the, the the various plays and musicals that would open on in new york and what's interesting is that Eric and Al become friends over the course of Aladdin. And Eric wants to keep this collaboration going. And so what he does is, and again, this is on a totally separate track than him working on Pocahontas or him working on the you know, Carnival of Animals, is that he goes to, uh, you know, uh, he goes to Al and says, look, I'd love to do an entire short in your style. I mean, you know, it was, it was lovely to do the genie and, you know, but I, again, I want to try to do a whole film, you know, your stuff, you, the things you do for the New York times theater page, you know, but animated. And he says, I think I have an idea, you know, cause I, I feel like it's a story that has to be set in New York city. And I'm thinking the perfect piece of music for this would be Gershwin's Rhapsody in blue. And, and Al, it's like, Al loves this. And so he, he gives his blessing. And, and so Eric begins working on it more as a personal passion project. And, but over time he realizes that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to need some help, you know, uh, and, and more to the point, you know, between, you know, (laughs) arranging for the music rights and, uh, you know, and, and again, Rhapsody in Blue, this has got to be vivid color and, you know, you get Susan involved and that sort of thing. But he realizes I'm going to need, you know, uh, the studio's backing. And so he brings Rhapsody in Blue to Disney. And, in, and initially, this is what fascinates me, is Disney lets him work on it thinking, well, this is a short. You know, a, a, there's, there, there's literally no talk of this going into Fantasia Continue. You know, because we already have a Eric Goldberg scene. We already have the flamingos with the yo-yos. But now 
they begin to do test screenings of Fantasia Continued around the country. And what they find is that three scenes from the original Fantasia is one scene too many. That, you know, that, and in fact, the, when they collect the cards at the end of the screenings, it's, it's basically, look, the old stuff is boring, you know, and can we have less of the old stuff? So this is when they make the decision to actually pull the Nutcracker suite out of the movie. But now, uh, Fantasia 2000, because again, at this point, we, we've slid past the 97 delivery date. It's like, you know, it needs something. And that's when they pivot and it's like, well, that Rhapsody in Blue thing, the short, could could that be the new chunk? And that to me, I just I find that fascinating that that this was never supposed to be part of Fantasia and winds up being one of the real It's people. the only thing anybody remembers from that Fantasia. Did it didn't Eric Goldberg do the Donald Duck uh Noah's Ark as well? He might have done some work on it. I mean, face it that remember that's the, 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 uh, was that inspired by Eisner's kid? Yeah. Well, you remember the original version of Disney's pomp and circumstance, right? The one that was the parade of the, the princess's baby. Oh yes. That was, I don't think they ever animated that, but they, somebody pitched it for sure. Well, no, 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 there's, there's a like a reel. Okay. There's, there's okay. boards. We need, we need to, someone needs to uh, liberate this from the dark vault. Well, like, you know, that, that's the weird part. I know for a fact it was shown actually, I want to say on the Disney magic as part of an animation presentation. And every so often someone alludes to the fact that I may have a copy. I really want to see this because well, you know the conceit, right? That that it's the the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland who, you know, her crown falls apart during the ceremony and she keeps trying to steal crowns off of the little princess babies. Uh, and I guess it's Donald who's the footman who's delivering the pillows with all the crowns. And so he's the one battling with the Red Queen. I mean, it sounds like a really funny idea. It's, it's a sad that we have to be in international waters to be able to see it. But, you know... <laughs> But how many, you know, you bring up Eric's short or section for this. You and I both know that I would say for the past 15 years, he's been pitching a third Fantasia. At one point, there were so many pitches of his that Lasseter referred to Fantasia 3 as the Goldberg variations. (laughs) And it never happened. And you and I remember, too, that, you know... In the early 2000s, you you would see bits of the third Fantasia come out as the little matchstick girl. And what were some of the other ones that sort of eked out? Oh, God. Uh, One by one. I mean, one by one. This was the the international music version. Oh, speaking of that, Jim, did you notice that? Did you see that Glago's guest wound up on YouTube? No. Okay, I'm going to send it. I hope it's still there because I will send it to you directly. Oh, but no, I, I have been trying to see really this. It's really great, and I texted Chris Williams right afterwards and said, great short, man, it's finally out there, and he had no idea, but was but watched it again. Wow. Um, so, yes. Okay, no, 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 send that video okay. now. No, okay. no, 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 no. In fact, 
that we now have to end the show quickly, folks, because the, 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 I want to see this before this just disappears. So, all right. Uh, in closing now, I want to remind you about the, the wonderful Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, which Drew does with the with his very talented co-host, Charles Hood. I, I know you've been going through your back catalog of shows, and that's a great idea because you have some amazing interviews. Yeah, I don't even know what the next one is, but we've been churning these out, um, and it's been a lot of fun to revisit. So that's what we're doing right now. And then we've got some some big stuff on the horizon that I can't talk about yet, but should be very fun. And Jim, it's still online on YouTube. Type in Glago's guest. Okay. All right. Well, again, we're moving fast now here, folks. I got to get, you know, all right. So I uh, want to remind you other podcasts uh, that we do here at, at Jim Hill Media. We got, of course, uh, Disney Dish, which I do with Len Testa. Uh, we have Looking at Lucasfilm, which I, which I do with Brian Gunn. We have the recently revived Universal show, the uh, epic uh, Universal podcast, which I do with uh, Eric Hersey, and then we even have our newly revived merch podcast. I want that too, which I do with Lauren Hersey. So, uh, you know, that that we have those out there for you to sample. And let's also not forget about uh, Disney Unpacked, a, a brand new video series, uh, you know, that uh, we, Len and I are doing with veteran Imagineer Jim Shul. And next month, we are doing a deep dive on Rock and Roller Coaster. And by the way, is one of the supporting shows of this thing. We're doing a look at uh, Discovery Bay, folks, you know, uh, and and how that led to a lot of stuff that went to Disneyland Paris. So be sure and check Wait, that you're out. Doing a, you're doing Let's... an episode on Rock and Roller Coaster? Wait a second. I think I love that idea. <laughs> That's a really good there you Tyler. Go. I, yeah. I he's a man of many talents folks okay let's see beyond that let's uh well let's talk social media and yeah i am i mean who has time for that jim when i'm when i've got 1100 other things to do but yeah drew tailored like a tailored shirt on all social media platforms blue sky twitter instagram facebook okay cool and same thing here you can find me on twitter and instagram as jim hill media and over on facebook as Jim Hill Media News. And okay, one final favor, folks, before we head out the door here and rush to go see Glago's Ghost, uh, guest, Glago's guest. Uh, uh, if you could, please go over to op- Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, fine tuning, but also like the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. That would be incredibly helpful. And beyond that, like I said, you know, uh, some amazing stories by Drew Taylor over at The Wrap. In fact, again, if you want to learn more about this Warner Brothers Discovery Earnings Call, again, great piece at, at The Wrap right now. Go read it. And I that'll do it for this week. That's right? it, Jim. I'm going to go to sleep now. Yes. Okay, we're done. <laughs>